beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned it already, we will focus on the gospel of the cross this afternoon. And not so much on the cross itself, but how now do we benefit from all that Christ suffered, and then the catechism says, during his whole life. And then we will focus on that, that Christ did so as our surety, that is, Christ suffered all this during his earthly ministry on earth for us and in our place. Let's take here what the Belgian Confession says about this. In Article 21 of the Belgian Confession, I quote, He presented himself in our place before his father, appeasing God's wrath by his full satisfaction, offering himself on the tree of the cross where he poured out his precious blood to purge our sins away. Well, that's the gospel we will focus on this afternoon. The gospel of Christ's suffering, whereby we will look at the intensity of that suffering, the nature of that suffering, and the fruit of that suffering. The gospel of Christ's suffering, and then we will look, first of all, at the intensity of Christ's suffering. During my active ministry, where I still gave catechism classes, and then when I would ask the students, what has Christ done for you? And in most cases, I would get as an answer, he died for us on the cross. There he suffered for our sins. And that's true. But that was on the cross. So what before that time, all these 33 years before, what did Christ do for us then? And that's why the Catechism says, it refers not only to the end of Christ's life here on earth, the final day, the last week, but it says, Christ suffered all the time he lived on earth. Throughout his whole life, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the whole human race. That confronts us with the deep intensity of Christ's suffering. For us, brothers and sisters, it's almost inconceivable already. What it must mean that you would suffer, say, from your birth, your whole life through. Never a day without pain. How can a healthy person feel, imagine what that must mean? But then to imagine that Christ's suffering was even more severe because it was not just a physical suffering or even a mental suffering, but it says here, he bore during his whole life the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race to walk through life. He walked through life in the light of God's grace. But imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ walks through life feeling that burden of God's wrath on him from his youth till he died on the cross. How terrifying that must have been. How must that have pressed him down? Indeed, already during his youth. Now you say, where does that read that? In scripture that he already, during his youth, was pressed down, at least knew about the wrath of God. Well, that you get to know that when he as a 12-year-old boy goes with his father and mother to Jerusalem and there in the temple... He's there in front of the Pharisees, and they ask him deep and wise questions. And no matter they would have asked him questions about the Messiah, he would come. And then he amazed them with his answers. 
That's what he already knew when he was 12 years old. These Pharisees and scribes were amazed that this young fellow understood so much of Scripture. He knew the wrath of God is pressing upon my shoulders. That first of all. Then, another thing by which Christ also must have suffered tremendously, then I think what it reads in the first chapter of the Gospel according to John. He came to his own, here he comes, the Messiah. But his own did not receive him. The vast majority of the people were looking for a different Messiah. And then sometimes you may wonder, they saw all these signs. If the Lord Jesus would have walked in the streets of Amlil like this, would we have embraced him as our savior? I wonder. I wonder. You know that you have been saved by grace. Amazing grace. Are you still amazed? Or do you take it more or less for granted? We are covenant children. We go to heaven. The Lord has chosen us. That was Israel in those days. They thought, well, we are God's people. In the same days as Jeremiah, the temple is here. Never that Jerusalem will be destroyed. It is God's place. It is God's temple. We are freely formed. We are covenant children. We go to heaven. Amazing grace. Are you still amazed? That must have hurt the Lord Jesus. In the same way as it hurts him today. If we are no longer amazed, then take that grace for granted. It will be a recurring theme throughout this sermon. That's basically the text, you could say. Are we still amazed? So that's how Christ suffered. People despised him. In the end, they crucified him. When his suffering became most severe. You think of the struggle in Gethsemane. It was so severe that he sweat blood. Next he was arrested, led before the Sanhedrin. And then he sent to Pontius Pilate and then finally the cross. Where all the hate and venom of men and devils were spread out against him. How could the Lord Jesus carry it without any complaint? Yes, even having love for his enemies at that time. We were standing around them and he still prayed for them. But again, what made Christ's suffering on Calvary even more severe was that in addition to all this physical and emotional human suffering hanging on the cross, indeed then the full wrath of God was poured out upon him. At that moment, Christ had to empty the cup of, its, of God's wrath to its last bitter drop. That was the most severe part of Christ's suffering. Not what people did during that time, but Christ knew this is the hand of God to which I have to submit, obeying Father's will even now. And all this for you and me. This afternoon, brothers and sisters, we read a moving story about Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was during that severe struggle in the Garden that he prayed, Father, if it is all possible, let this cup, let, please, let me not drink this cup. Of course, the Lord Jesus knew that he had to drink this cup. And yet he prayed that this cup would pass him. Why? Because he was human, like you and I, without sin, but feeling the same as what you would feel. In his body, in his mind, in his spiritual life. He was bowed down by it. Father, if it is possible. But not my will, but thy will. So obey to Father's will because it was his food to do Father's will. 
And so then he's arrested, bound by soldiers, led away to the Celedrin. And then, in the end, to Pontus Pilate. But first, in, in, in Gethsemane, that we read this afternoon, yeah. he knew it was Father's will. And that's why, why he didn't fight back. Soldiers came to seize him, and then Peter comes and he draws the sword and he said, Lord, I'm here. You see, it said, if all would leave, here I am. He drew the sword. But they would say, the Lord Jesus said, that's not how it should be. Put that sword back. That's how the Lord Jesus was willing to submit to Father's will, because it was God's sovereign pleasure for Peter, the scripture must be fulfilled. It's God himself who this hour gives Satan free play to make his final attack on the mediator of the covenant. No doubt, all angels would have hasted themselves to render assistance to the Son of God. But in this hour, they are no longer permitted to do, do so. Even an hour ago, in that very same night, God had sent one of his servants to strengthen the Lord Jesus in his struggles. Now that seems very nice. But in, in Jesus' eye, that meant, I have to go on. The Lord gave him strength to carry on with that bitter road that lay ahead. No end yet. But now, the Lord Jesus could not even appeal to God to sending his angels. For he would have become disobedient to the task the Father had given. He would be unfit to be our surety. And that's why in this hour all angels are curbed by God. All angels are curbed to give the devil free play. More than Samson was here. The Lord Jesus could have easily snapped the ropes by which he was bound, but he was not allowed to do so. His body had to be nailed on the cross, and that's why in full obedience he submits to the Father's will and says to Peter and also to the crowds, this takes place, that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then he's led to the Sanhedrin, sentenced because of blasphemy, think of the Son of God sentenced because of blasphemy and then sent to Pontius, Pontius Pilate where they accuse him of stirring the people up, a rebel who should go to the cross and then finally the cross God's wrath poured out upon him in all its intensity what a suffering beloved who of us would ever be able to fathom that, the depths of this suffering, the betrayal of Judas that burning kiss Bound by soldiers, mocked, despised, finally nailed to the cross, and that in complete loneliness. In Gethsemane, even his most intimate disciples left him and fled. And no one could blame them for it. What a tension they had gone through at night. They did not understand why all this had to happen. All of a sudden, all they hoped for seemed to be ruined. It became dark in their minds. All hope had gone. And that's how God wanted it. His wrath poured out upon the Lord Jesus in all his bitterness, anguish, the agony of hell, when in the final hours even God himself forsook his son, eternal death, as the unbelievers will experience it on after day of judgment in hell. The thunder of God's heavy wrath rumbles over Golgotha, the peals of God's thunder, about which you read as in the last book of the Bible, when God will come back here on earth with the final day of judgment. That's what Christ suffered. Horrible, indeed. We spoke about the bitterness of Christ's suffering beyond human comprehension. Yet, beloved, 
If we are only to dwell on the bitterness of all this, we would not benefit from it. After all, many a matter suffered intense agony as well. But the point is that the Lord Jesus Christ did not suffer this as a matter, but as a surety. That means he suffered all this for you and me. A matter is passive on what he suffered. On what he suffered. But Christ said, I have to, I came to do this. Just imagine, he came into this world, he left all the riches of heaven and came into this world that he wanted to do that for you and me. Willingly. He bore in wrath, in body and soul, the wrath of God against the whole human race. Now I'd like to focus for a moment on that expression, against the whole human race. What does it mean? For a start, it does not mean that because of this also every individual will be saved by Christ. That's a teaching that is not based on scripture. John 10, he came to give his life for the sheep, for those who the Father had given him, and for those only. Scripture teaches us very clearly that unbelievers will not escape God's wrath. We should never try to cover this up by saying God's love, and therefore in the end everyone will be saved, or at least can be saved, if he by his own free will renders himself to Christ. That's a man-centered gospel. This denies that God is terrible displeased. Lord, say four of the Halbeck Catechism. That God is terrible displeased with sin and will not leave it unpunished. That's why Christ had to die, not for everyone, but only for those who in true faith want to entrust their whole life to him. I may refer here to another confession, the Canons of Dort, chapter 2, article 8, where it reads, God will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and tongue, all those and those only, who from eternity were chosen to salvation and were given to him by the Father, ends of God. So Christ did not shed his precious blood for everyone, nor has he put things straight for everyone, whereby it is up to men either to accept it or not. That was the error of the Arminians, who thought that man had a free will by which he could choose whether he wants forgiveness or not. That's a teaching not based on Scripture. Christ shed his precious blood only for the believers. But what then? What then does it mean that it says here in this Lord's Day that he bore the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race? For he indeed did. Why? For in paradise, brothers and sisters, Adam sinned not just as a private person, but as the head of the whole human race. It was the wrath of God against this sin which Christ had to bear. That means, that means because Adam sinned on behalf of all all humankind. This means even in case Christ had saved only one singer, sinner from the misery in which man by his own fault had plunged themselves, he would have, he would have, have suffered the same. So, what I want to say is the severeness of Christ's suffering is not just in accordance with the number of people for whom he had to give his life. Instead, Christ bore the burden of God's wrath against the sin of the whole human race so that the sacrifice of his life on Calvary, as it says also in the Canons of Dort, was abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. It's for this reason that the gospel is preached indiscriminately to each and everyone. However, wherever this gospel is preached, also this afternoon it comes with the command to repent and believe. It's those who believe and those only who through Christ's suffering 
receive eternal life. If you call in the, the, the discussion about predestination and so on, I leave that now because even predestination does not undo our own responsibility. Every time the gospel is preached here in the church of Amalil, for you and me, whenever the gospel is preached, it comes to us with the command to repent and believe. Eternal life for you and me. Even though we deserved eternal death. What a great miracle. Christ's sacrifice on the cross confronts us with a love so great that it surpasses our human understanding. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Scripture does teach us very clearly that we can only be reconciled with God through the death of Christ. Through his death, the form for the Lord's Supper, Christ cancelled the bond which stood against us because of our sins. Now, today we live in a climate in which people no longer want to hear about the wrath of God. Nowadays, even in what were once called Reformed churches, you hear the following teaching. While suffering, Christ did not bear the wrath of God, but he suffered as a martyr. And that martyrdom of Christ intended to function as an incentive for us that we follow him likewise with full trust in God, and then we will be reconciled to God. Again, it's a teaching totally contrary to Scripture. For it has nothing to do. It would have nothing, no incentive for repentance either. It was just the following an example, and then you will be saved. Yet it should be stressed that repentance is needed. And that is an effect as fruit of Christ's reconciling work for us. If Christ had not taken away the curse of God, we would all have perished under the heavy weight of God's eternal judgment upon sin. And that's why we should never make light of the gospel and the price that was paid for us. That's why I try to bring across in, in a small way for who can ever bring across the true intensity of Christ's suffering. But the point is, are we still marveling of it? Marveling of it. Amazing grace. Are we still amazed? Why have I made that lately quite an, an, an theme for the sermons I've delivering, I'm delivering at throughout this year almost? It came about, let me say, about mid-last year. There was a conference in a packed church in Kelmscott, where Reverend, e, Reverend Wildeboer and Reverend Wiske, two missionaries, Want to impress upon the young people, you have to live for Christ. Yeah? Maybe you can still remember it, that it's, it's on my eyes. I can still remember it, that there's a different Wilbur was staying there and said, I can weep! I can weep! For all the waste of time. And then Riven Wiske followed it up by, Redeem your time. It was so impressive. And you come out of church, and you speak to some young people, and they have asked, amazing. I want to change my life. Half a year later, I come to know that there is, and I have to say this, there is a culture among the free reformed young people of drinking, sleeping around at the beaches, boys and girls, drug, drug abuse, that's there. Let's not close our eyes for it. It's vividly there. And so, December last year, I was with one of these guys in my study. He had been there. 
He had been under that speech of Wiske and Wildroor. He said, what have you done with it? Yeah. One of these guys that lived in that culture. And that was the reason why at a national youth convention, I, I had a workshop of amazing grace. I was still amazed. Now, can look at the youth. It's easy to look at the youth. But we as adults, do you radiate the joy of faith to your children? They say, my, my son, my daughter, this is Christ who died for you, who bore the wrath of God for you. Are you still amazed? Just imagine yourself yes, for a moment. Just because we, we, we are visual, we are very judgmental people. Let's say it as well. That's also an attitude in our churches that, that has, to, has to, to, to go away. Because we always vi visualize, our, mirror ourselves in the life of others. And how does come out best? At least I'm not as he. At least I'm not as him. Visualize yourself a moment. Standing before holy God with all your sinfulness, completely state. No cent in your pocket whatsoever. At that moment, there is no... So God says, you are the guilty person. You have to pay for all your sins. In that hour, beloved. You can't say to God, yes, but I was better than him. I was at least not such a worse sinner as he. No. Then you stand there personally guilty. I had a high school teacher that also, still in my mind, was one of my favorite high school teachers. He, he, he taught us life skills. And he said, in the end, you are standing there before God. Your wife cannot help you. Your children cannot help you. You are standing there before God on your own. And you have nothing. Guilty. All over. You have to pay. Not an animal, not a sacrifice or whatever. That's where you and I were, beloved. That's where we were. And then, the gospel of God's grace. God said, I so loved you that I sent my only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. One of the beautiful texts of Scripture, we know them off by heart, but what we do it. Beloved, do we take time to reflect on the greatness of this miracle, so that you daily, daily stand in awe of the fact that God's curse has been taken away from you. That instead of eternal death, you may now look forward to eternal life. It's already here begin, begins to live with God and that forever. Today already foretaste in faith. Now, how, how do you grow in that awe of God? Only by opening God's words. And that you say, this is my father. And reflect on it, meditate on it. It's a skill we have unlearned as well. That you take time. Maybe half an hour. And put your gadgets away. Don't read in that half an hour your Bible from your iPad or from your smartphone. I say that because what young people will you do if you do it from your smartphone, all of a sudden comes a message in. Oh, what's the message? You're distracted. God wants you alone and then meditate on it. The God who said, I let there be light and there is light. That's my father. He can do that in a wonderful way. He doesn't always do that, but in a wonderful way he said, I sent you cancer, but I take that cancer away. That's my father to whom I claim. That's how you should meditate on God's word. He led his people through the dry river. My father. They don't need a gadget. They don't need my iPad. 
then I meditate on that. And I mean this in all seriousness, but I was, was speaking about a, how to study the Bible, and it was in Elbury, 60-year men Bible society, and I said, just imagine, in the olden days, and it's not trivial, in the olden days, when dad would take the Bible, the children would take the Bible as well, and they would read with him. Just imagine that nowadays, dad would take out his iPad, and everyone takes his, his smartphone, and we read the Bible. Have that book in your Bible, in your hands. That's my father's words. And I want to do his will because I'm amazed for his grace for me. Then, if you do that, then it will be a fruit. Christ says that in his words. That brings us to the last part of the sermon. We focused on the intensity, the nature of Christ's suffering, that he did it all for us in our place. Substitutionary atonement. Now, Finally, the fruit of Christ's suffering. While suffering, especially at the end of his life, Christ himself missed all comfort. There were people who tried to comfort him, who were moved, some women. But then he says to these women, weep for yourself, don't weep for me. Because he was thinking about the destruction of Jerusalem that would come because of their sins. Don't weep for me, weep for you and your children, he says. There is a story, there is a story, a legend, which tells us that at that time a woman even tried to dash away with the hanky the sweat of Jesus' face and that the imprint of Jesus' face was left in her hanky. Of course, all that is mere fantasy. It shows that somehow people would like to read that even at that time there was still compassion for Jesus. But even beloved, even though that might have been the case, the Lord Jesus was no longer allowed to accept any compassion. The hour of darkness had come in which he had to suffer completely in loneliness, the wrath and curse of God, in which, and that without any comfort, without any sympathy, not from man, and in the end, not from God either. Christ had to suffer hellish, hellish agony to its fullest extent. Now, well, what the features of hell will be, brothers and sisters, that there's no comfort, no communion with God, total loneliness. It's because Christ suffered all this that we will never be lonely. And may always find comfort, even amidst all the sufferings we might have to endure. Whilst Christ was suffering, bore the wrath of God, so that we no longer have to bear the wrath of God in the sufferings we go through. For brothers and sisters, suffering is not a sign that God's wrath is still kindled against your sins. I like to stress that, for sometimes we have the wrong perception there. Let me just try to make that clear with an example. Same, a husband leaves home, and when he leaves home, he has just an argument with his wife. But anyway, I have to go to work now. And then, on the way to work, he gets an accident. Well, it must be God punishing me. No, it's not. It's not. But of course, Christ bore the punishment for me, so it cannot be punishment. Well then, well, God may be testing us. God may, bring it, try, may try to bring us to our senses. God is busy with us, also through disciplining us, and then, then things happen. But it happens to the glory of God. Think of that, that fellow that was blind, and then the Pharisees go, how come? Has he sinned? Or, or his parents? Now this happens so that the glory of God will be revealed. Just imagine. Children, the parents got a boy born blind. He must have been 
why this? Why this in our life? Lord, I can't understand. But the Lord had already planned the life of this boy so that later on the Lord Jesus could open his eyes. For that purpose, he was born blind. See, that's how God maps out the perfect plan of our life. And sometimes we see it, sometimes we'll never see it on this earth. But it's perfect. And that, that, that gives you also comfort, beloved, that you should not worry about tomorrow. Because God has all written in his book, in the book of your life, what will happen tomorrow. So why should I worry about it? It's perfect. I can't always understand it. How can it be perfect when a wife, a mom, suffers from cancer? How can it be perfect that children of God leave the church and parents are grieving? I don't know. But I have to believe that it is perfect. For God is my father. And he's written my book. It was all written in God's book that that person should have cancer, that that person should have walked out of the church. It was written in God's book. For somehow I can't understand that. But I have peace that I leave it to God. And maybe one day God will open my eyes here on earth for that purpose and maybe I will see it in heaven. That's the only comfort we have. But that is the greatest comfort we have. God is in control. He's my father. And he's my father for Christ's sake. For he is my father since Christ died for me on the cross. There he bore the punishment. And therefore in all the suffering that we suffer here on earth, that's not punishment, it's testing, discipline, or whatever, but God is busy. Then there's another text that also sometimes is uh, interpreted wrongly, that, that Christ has followed me and you will have to carry my yoke. And then, we, 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 we interpret it and say, well, that's uh, the cross. You have to bury my cross. So every house has its own cross. Everyone goes through suffering or whatever. There's nothing to do with that. Christ says, that cross is when you suffer for your faith. When they attack you, when they ridicule you. So when you're back at work tomorrow and they ridicule you about your faith because you're amazed about God's grace and you want to you radiate that, then you may be ridiculed. Well, that's the yoke. You bear for Christ. And then you will bear that gladly. Because he's my savior. He died for me. And because of that, nothing can separate us from God's love. Romans 8. We are children of God, Romans 8, it says. We can call him Abba Father through the Spirit. But then Romans 8, verse 18 and onwards, it talks about the groaning. This world groans. We grow. Even the Spirit groans with us. He brings our groaning before God so that God, even when I can't pray anymore, and say, Lord, I don't see it anymore. Only a deep sigh. Romans 8, verse 29. The Spirit brings it before God because next to the advocate in heaven, you have also an advocate here on earth. So the Spirit brings our prayers before God. And it's because of that, as Paul starts that chapter, Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They suffer. Romans 8, Verse 18 through to 28. And then the beautiful end of Romans 8. Whatever happens, persecution, suffering, no one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the cross. That's the gospel of the cross. 
which I was allowed to preach here this afternoon. Amazing grace. Are you still amazed? Young people, you will have a sermon discussion after this service. Dwell on this, but not only you, also the adults who go home. Maybe say it around the dinner table, and that each one in his own way tell why he is amazed. Amazing grace. Are you still amazed? Amen.